Chair, staff is ready when you are. Good evening. Welcome to the August 23rd, um, 2023 Utilities Rate Advisory Commission meeting. The meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Yes, good evening. Thank you. Commissioner Zito? Commissioner Thomas, absent. Commissioner Johnson, here. Commissioner Vanderwerf, here. Commissioner Lee, absent. Vice Chair Godowski, absent. And Chair Fidel, here. Thank you. We have a quorum. I would like to remind members of the public and chambers that if you would like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker slip when the item begins. For members of the public who wish to join virtually, please refer to the agenda for the Zoom link. Once you have joined the meeting and wish to speak, raise your hand to provide public comment when the chair confirms the public comment speaking period for your desired item. If you're online, click on raise hand at the bottom of your screen. In the mobile app, you can raise your hand by tapping the raise hand option in the more tab. You'll have two minutes to speak once you're called on. After the first speaker, we will no longer accept speaker slips and the raise hand feature in Zoom will be disabled. We will now proceed with today's agenda. Everyone who's able, please rise. To the original people of this land, the Nisanan people, the Southern Maidu, Valley and Plains Miwok, Patwin Wintun, peoples and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we, may we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please remain, remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Our first business today is approval of the consent calendar. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on the consent calendar? Thank you, Chair. No, we have none. <clears throat> Thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? Is there a motion and a second for the consent calendar? I'll move the consent calendar. Thank you. Do I have a second? I'll second. Thank you. I have a motion by Commissioner Vanderwerf and a second by Commissioner Johnson. Will the, clerk, will the clerk please call the roll for the vote? Thank you. Commissioner Zito? Aye. Commissioner Thomas is absent. Commissioner Johnson? Aye. Commissioner Vanderwerf? Aye. Uh, and Chair Fidel? Aye. Thank you. Motion passes. Thank you. We will now proceed to the discussion calendar. Item one is 
an informational presentation on the Climate Action Plan from the Department of Utilities. Is there a staff presentation? Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Sarah Morrissey. I'm a Sustainability Program Specialist at the Department of Utilities. I'm here today to provide an update on DOU's climate action plans and some of the projects we're working on while keeping in mind UREC's interest in how climate resiliency and adaptations may impact our costs and funding needs in the future. First, I'd like to start off with a few notes on the city's climate action and adaptation plan, or CAP. It guides us in our approach and the priorities that we're setting for our department. The CAP is in the process of being updated in tandem with the city's 2040 general plan update. The documents were released for public review in April and remained open over the past several months for input. Last night, the public review draft of the CAP was reviewed by council. After additional revisions and public hearings, adoption of the CAP is expected early in 2024. The CAP sets generous, excuse me, the CAP sets greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets to reach the city's goal of achieving carbon neutrality by 2045. It also sets the policy direction to respond to projected climate change, including specific actions and a funding and financing strategy in Appendix D. We do know that significant funding will be needed to implement all of the measures that are in the CAP. The state and federal governments provide some limited funding for this work, typically in the form of competitive grants. DOU's sustainability team works with our long-term financial planning group and the city's Office of Climate Action and Sustainability, as well as other city and regional partners to identify, assess, and pursue grant opportunities. When looking at the climate change impacts to DOU's operations, we're primarily focused on the following. First, there are water quantity effects. We can anticipate greater variability and precipitation in the future, significantly more or less. Also, warmer temperatures, decreases in the quantity of snowmelt, and the timing of runoff will likely affect our water supply. There are also water quality effects. For example, a rise in water temperature can increase the possibility of algal blooms, of changes in watershed vegetation, and the growth of invasive species. All of the above will likely lead to some operational and reliability effects due to things like increased water quality monitoring, water conservation efforts, and flood preparedness, we may need to prepare for more extensive monitoring and infrastructure protection. And then lastly, there are financial and institutional effects to consider. As operations and water reliability become more complex, we can expect increased operational costs and a potential need for rate adjustments. Next, I'd like to share some details on some of the projects that we currently have going on at DOU that are regarding sustainability. Our department's sustainability post policy was finalized in September of 2021. Our high-level goals in alignment with the city's cap are to achieve carbon neutrality by 2045, to build climate resiliency in our infrastructure, and to advance equity and environmental justice. And my team coordinates and supports projects that are related to these goals. Right now, we're starting the process of getting a consultant on board to help provide technical assistance with developing a sustainability action plan for DOU. This will provide a roadmap to achieving specific actionable goals in alignment with our sustainability policy and the CAP. The action plan will clearly lay out how we plan to meet our GHG emissions reductions targets, our resiliency and adaptation strategies, 
and identify the resources that we'll need to meet the goals and metrics we'll use to measure our progress. This will help us not only plan for a sustainable future, but also support our pursuit of grant funding opportunities, as we'll be able to have a clear, coordinated strategy for the department. We're hoping to get a consultant under contract by the end of this year and finalize the plan by the end of next year. Another project that we're working on is building dashboards to help us track our performance measures. These measures are related to DOU's energy usage and expenses, GHG emissions, and then various aspects of our water conservation program, such as the amount of water that we save each year due to our rebate programs. DOU Sustainability is a small team, only two staff members, so we're fortunate to also have a fellow on board, and that helps us build some capacity. Over the past few months, that fellow has been helping us with working with stakeholders, compiling, verifying, and managing the data, and then building these dashboards so we can better visualize trends and measure our progress over time. Another significant project for our team is the work that we're doing related to on-site non-potable water reuse. This is a solution that will help us reclaim, recycle, and reuse water for non-drinking water purposes. A little background on this, in June of 2021, Council approved an ordinance requiring electrification of new buildings for one to three stories as of January of 2023 and four more stories as of January 2026. The passage of that ordinance led to the acceleration of on-site water reuse, both to um, help conserve water, but then also to aid in the just transition of local gas pipe fitting jobs to the installation of alternate water systems. Our team worked with a consultant to perform a study, which resulted in the city adopting an alternate water systems ordinance in December of last year. That ordinance required that as of January of this year, new commercial buildings, 10,000 square feet or larger, must include gray water systems for irrigation, and then for 50,000 square feet or larger, they must have separate additional piping systems for the future on-site water reuse in water closets and urinals. Upon approval of the ordinance, we were directed by council to embark on phase two of this effort. We're in the process right now of getting a consultant on board to do a feasibility study where we'll be looking at the expansion of the current ordinance to potentially cover additional building types and then maybe add a requirement for certain buildings to have on-site water treatment systems. Over the next 12 months, we'll be working with the consultant to perform the study. There will be a rigorous uh, public engagement period, and we plan on returning to council with any recommendations for the ordinance in June of 2025. Next, I'd like to move on to an update on DOU's fleet electrification. I think this is something that URAC has specifically indicated an interest in. The following policies and regulations are driving the electrification of our fleet. The city's fleet sustainability policy has a goal of having 75% of our light duty vehicles during the replacement process um, be a zero emissions vehicle, and that is with a target date of 2020. And then the California Air Resources Board is mandating that all new passenger and light duty vehicles must be zero emissions by 2035 and heavy duty vehicles by 2045. We, like all government agencies, are facing some challenges related to the unstable pricing and the delays with the delivery of these vehicles as we all try to meet the state's regulations. A year or two ago, DOU made an effort for some ZEVs and it ended up being canceled due to supply chain issues. 
And then the cost skyrocketed tens of thousands of dollars for each vehicle, making it cost prohibitive to move forward with an order at that time. So across the city, we're still working towards meeting that goal, this, the fleet sustainability policy. The city's fleet management team, the Office of Climate Action and Sustainability, and DOU Logistics and Sustainability teams are working closely together to research and plan for how we're going to move forward in alignment with the regulations. Fleet management is expecting to put out a plan in 2024 with more details, and we can certainly update you when we have more information. Here's some numbers to give you an idea of where we are currently with DOU's fleet. We have 377 light, medium, and heavy duty vehicles. Out of the 149 light and medium duty vehicles, nine of them are hybrid, and eight of the, 18 of them are ZEVs. The replacement cost for a traditional light or medium duty vehicle is $58,000 on average, while a ZEV is $100,000. Keep in mind though that those are rough estimates and it spans a wide range of vehicle types and the different options that go into them. I don't have estimates on the replacement costs for the heavy duty vehicles yet, as we don't have any, they're also being developed and are not available for purchase. But even when they do become available, there can be purchasing challenges because we might have to go out for bid rather than tapping into an existing cooperative agreement. That makes purchasing slower and it leads to us being open to supply and demand pricing. Another significant cost is the charging infrastructure. DOU currently has about 25 chargers. So including installation and other associated costs, we can expect for a two-handle charger for the light-duty vehicles to have a cost of around $17,000. And then the DC fast chargers for the medium and heavy-duty vehicles are running at about $185,000. And just to clarify, that is including the installation costs as well. The city received some grant funding so far for our charging infrastructure, and they're going to continue pursuing additional funding opportunities through the Office of Fleet Management. They're working with SMUD as well to help evaluate and estimate what our future needs are going to be related to our charging infrastructure, including the costs and the locations. We will expect more details in the plan that fleet management is working on. Something though that we have to consider is not only how we're going to meet the city's emissions targets, but also DOU's role in maintaining critical infrastructure and responding to emergency operations needs. In January of this year, DOU was involved in 14 days straight of around the clock storm response. How will we meet the, the need for charging when crews are working and rotating through those 12 hour shifts? What will the replacement cycle costs be for chargers based off of that kind of heavy use? And what do we do when there are power emergencies, power outages during emergencies? These are just some of the questions that we're gonna be looking into and incorporating into our planning efforts. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. No, we have no members of the public that wish to speak on this item. Thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? Commissioner Vanderwoof. Thank you, Chair. Um, I just wanted to know, you talked about there being an ordinance that you're gonna create and then take back to council. Will we get to hear about that ordinance a little bit? I know we won't get to weigh in technically, but would we be able to hear about it?
I certainly believe that we could come back and get your input on the ordinance. Um, be happy to do that. We're going to be engaging members of the community throughout the process, so we'd be happy to, to share the information here as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that we share it. Obviously, there's interest in that information, so we'll make sure we, sh we share it before it's finalized. So uh, along with uh, public input, if there's any input from the commission, we can make sure we provide it. Thank you. I, I just have a very obvious question. So does each department buy its own um, fleet? I, I mean, fleet manage, man, manages this, but does the bill go to the department? Yes. Um, so fleet manages it, and then each department um, provides their funding. So we know what we need for a fiscal year. Uh, we would plan on that funding uh, going from our funds to, to fleets uh, to be able to purchase that. So they put everything together for the entire city when they purchase, so the purchasing power is there, uh, but that's how it works. So each uh, department would pay for their use, but fleet does the purchasing for everybody in the city. And what would your regular um, replacement cycle be for the the vehicles that you're looking at, the light and medium and heavy. Okay. Do you have an idea or are we gonna come back with that information, Ryan? Yes. Okay, I'll let Ryan answer that <laughs> okay. question. Good evening, Chair Fadel. Um, so the replacement vehicle is based on the multiple criteria that provided by the fleet uh, division. So it's based on the mileage, the age, and the usage of them. So our replacement cycle, it depends on those three criteria. And then a replacement list will be provided to each of the department, and we will make the appropriate uh, funding decision for that. So. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That was very interesting. on to what Ryan uh, just answered. Um, we also have the ability, um, when we're challenged with funding, like we have been on our storm drainage side, to be able to make decisions to keep vehicles for longer so that we're not spending as quickly. Um, so we work with fleet and we can make adjustments. We try to follow the replacement cycle because if you keep vehicles too long, it ends up costing you more oftentimes. But if uh, we're challenged with funding, we can make adjustments. Yes. Okay, I just wanted to say, um, when you're figuring out all these costs, you're gonna add the cost of maintenance because it's my understanding with the EVs, you've got other maintenance costs that you might not have with a regular, you know, other, other hybrid or something else that could be quite costly if you're looking at replacing batteries much more frequently. Um, you know, it's not just gonna be that it'll be done, you have to buy a new EV, it's you, you might have continuing costs of replacing. So that's gonna be, um, Interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, um, so we do, um, with regular vehicles and with electric vehicles, uh, the cost of maintenance is, is uh, determined by fleet. Um, they also have a shop um, within the city where vehicles will go for repairs. So in terms of the electric vehicles, um, and I, I know this was covered last night in the uh, council meeting, um, is fleet making sure that their shop 
is outfitted to be able to handle those kinds of repairs and replacements, and then staff need to be trained as well because it's not an area that we have expertise in. Um, so all of that is built out and all of that will be factored in uh, in terms of the cost of maintenance, whether it's battery replacement or anything else related to uh, an electric vehicle fleet, which is why um, <laughs> timing is, is interesting, right? It's going to take us a lot of time to get to the point where we feel like we're ready to deal with where we need to be. Um, and so it's taking all of those challenges into account as we build ourselves up for that. else? Any other questions? Okay. This item is um, receive and file, so no vote is required. We'll move on to the next item. Hello, I'm Cheryl Hewn. I'm the Department of Utilities Engineering Manager. Um, so good evening, Chair Fidel and Commissioners. Um, I'm here to talk to you about some of the numerous regulations and permits um, that our department must comply with that drive how we operate, maintain, and invest in our three different systems. Uh, tonight, we are going to highlight some of the key reg regulations, programs, or issues um, that have a significant fiscal impact to our department. So we're gonna cover each one of our systems. We're gonna start with our wastewater system and we're gonna talk about our combined system long-term control plan update. Uh, we're gonna, for our separated sewer system, we're gonna talk about our sanitary sewer management plan and some of those requirements. Under the drainage uh, system, we have a statewide trash discharge pro prohibition requirement and also FEMA levy certification requirements. Uh, for our water system, we have drinking water regulations, and we're going to talk to you about PFAS, hexavalent chromium, lead and copper rule, and microplastics monitoring. And then something that affects all of our systems is our combustion generators. Uh, before I get into the details related to some of the different regulations, we wanted to share with you that we don't just wait until these regulations are upon us and then react to them. We really try to look at what's coming and here are some of the ways um, that we um, uh, watch for upcoming regulations. So our subject matter experts in our department, as well as our gov government affairs staff, um, they track draft legislation, policies, and permits. Um, we participate in stakeholder processes for new regulations. We regularly communicate with our regulatory agency staff. Um, we also engage in indus industry association committees and get updates from our consultants. And we put uh, uh, various organizations um, that we participate in up on this slide. Um, so I'm gonna start with our wastewater and drainage regulations first. Uh, starting with wastewater, uh, for our wastewater collection systems, uh, both the separated and combined, we have seen regulations from the State Water Board move to ensure sanitary sewer systems are proactive at preventing infrastructure failures or system backups that can cause sewage to exit the collection system and enter our waterways. Uh, any exit of sewage or combined sewage into um, our waterways is, or out of our system is considered a spill per the regulations. And the department has to report the volume of each spill 
that exits the, our system as well as the volume of any spills that enter waterways. Uh, DOU spill volumes and spill frequencies are evaluated by our regulators to determine if we have effective programs. The State Water Board expects effective maintenance and capital programs for our systems. Um, they look for our asset management program to show that our agency knows where our pipes are and that we can quickly respond to spills. They're looking for fiscal assessments to show that our agency is capable of funding adequate maintenance programs as well as prevent failures from equipment um, and address material lifespans that are starting to you know, exceed their lifespan and making sure that we have the fiscal reserves to conduct these repairs promptly. Um, they're looking for programs where repairs are prior prioritized by their potential to impact water quality. And lastly, they're looking um, to make sure that we have long-term system resiliency planning, uh, which now requires consideration of the impacts from climate change. Getting into the details for the combined system long-term control plan, um, this is a requirement of our state combined system NPDES permit, and it requires that we update our long-term control plan. This is a planning document that shows how DOU is going to meet our permit goals of minimizing flooding and protecting water quality. This plan must address increased regulatory requirements, such as accounting for changes in precipitation, uh, utilizing recent rainfall data, as well as climate change. Uh, this poses significant challenges for us to demonstrate our progress towards meeting these permit goals that were established many years ago. We also have to balance the needs of construction of large storage projects that are used to mitigate combined sewage flooding onto our streets. Um, these come at a significant cost with modest benefit, um, be, and the storage projects cannot completely eliminate the flooding on the streets. These projects are uh, designed per our permit requirement for a 10-year storm. We have to balance those projects with rehab and rehabilitation of our combined system as well. And this infrastructure includes our major pump stations that service the whole combined system footprint, large diameter force mains, and two combined system treatment facilities and four storage facilities, and we're required to maintain and operate all these systems to stay in compliance with our permit. So the long-term control update and the annual project and program assessments require continuous hydrology and hydraulic modeling, and modeling refinements, calibration, and validation. So giving you a few details related to this permit and this requirement and some of the fiscal impacts, Again, this permit, it's our combined system NPDES permit. It's issued by the Central Valley Water Board. Um, it also ensures that we're in compliance with the federal combined sewer overflow policy. Um, this permit requires that our long-term control plan update, which includes implementation schedules for these projects, um, that we submit this plan to the Water Board by September of 2024. Um, High-level estimates for uh, the, pro uh, the costs associated with some of these projects for uh, flow reduction, storage, and conveyance projects. We think that it's approximately $413 million for investment in our system. And for rehab and rehabilitation projects for some of the infrastructure that I had mentioned, um, we're estimating that that's approximately $146 million. So um, the consequences if the city is not moving these projects forward and adequately funding um, the, our programs to meet these permit goals, the consequences potentially are the regional board could 
issue us a violation, such as a time scheduled order, that also could come with fines. Uh, so now I'm going to move into our separated sewer system. This is um, a there's a WDR permit, again, that's issued by the state uh, water board. Um, the purpose of this regulation is to pro, uh, proactively uh, have a plan to prevent sewage spills. Uh, DOU complies with this uh, permit requirement uh, by an early adoption of industry best management practices. We use our asset management uh, program and maintenance work order system to identify uh, repair prioritization, our deferred maintenance needs, and capacity needs for new development. And all of this data and planning um, from our work order system is used in our rate planning as well. So the WDR was just recently updated by the state in 2022, and these new requirements went into effect just this last June. Um, the department will spend um, in 2024, we're going to go through an audit um, of our system and our programs and identify any gaps, and then those gaps would be addressed in a new sanitary system management plan update that is due to be submitted to the Water Board in 2025. So again, these programs and requirements, it is important that we have sufficient funding to comply um, with these uh, permit requirements and maintain and operate our system. And again, the Water Board could issue fines um, or uh, violations such as time scheduled orders. Now I'm going to move us on to the drainage system and talk to you about two requirements specifically related to that system. The first one is the trash discharge prohibition. This is another um, policy that was adopted by the State Water Board. It requires the city to develop and implement a plan to prohibit the discharge of trash five millimeters or greater from discharging from our drainage system into waterways. Uh, DOU's approach to deal with this regulation is to install trash capture devices in highly littered areas. We have two projects that are currently under design and siting right now. Um, we also have required all new development projects to uh, incorporate these trash capture devices as a part of their development project when they're building, and we started this in 2018. And then we're working with our other city departments on strategies to reduce litter and trash um, throughout Sacramento, and it would include things like uh, increased street sweeping and litter pickup programs. So um, the State Water Board uh, adopted this trash prohibition, but it has been incorporated into our stormwater discharge permit, or it's also sometimes called our stormwater NPDES permit. Um, it requires that we're in full compliance by 2030. We're estimating that these trash capture devices that the department would install would take, uh, cost about $7 million, and then also it would require an additional $1 million for equipment and 10 additional staff to maintain these devices since um, all throughout the wet season through storm events, they would have to go in and remove the trash and maintain these systems. Um, so this is a... a uh, permit requirement that is also affected by the litigation on our drainage fund. Um, until those funds are released, it really is hampering our ability to move forward with some of these projects, so it could hamper compliance by 2030. And again, um, the Water Board could use uh, any of its viol uh, regulatory authority to issue violations to the city if we weren't in compliance. So we would anticipate most likely it would be a time scheduled order again. 
Okay, our last uh, regulation that I'm gonna talk to you about tonight is our FEMA levy uh, certifications. Uh, the DOU is participating in certifying the levies that protect the city of Sacramento. So we coordinate with the Sacramento Area Flood Control Agency uh, on submittals to FEMA to certify the levies that protect the city. In order to do though, this DOU needs to model each of the city's drainage basins adjacent to levees being certified to map the 100-year floodplain. Uh, additionally, DOU is leading the effort to certify the Natomas interior levees and evaluate any deficiencies in that area. And lastly, we are coordinating uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers and SAFCA on structural improvement projects that they're managing uh, to the levees along the American and Sacramento rivers and the Natomas East Main Drain, or also referred to as Stillhead Creek, uh, a lot of times to um, provide 200-year uh, protection to the city. Um, so these requirements uh, are required by the National Flood Insurance Program, as well as California Senate Bill 5. And the levy certification packages are due to FEMA between 2024 and 2027. Uh, based on the interior drainage ana analysis results, if internal flooding is shown, which is, is expected in some areas, CIP projects may be required to improve the city's drainage system, which could have significant costs. Um, if the levies are not certified, which we do not expect to happen, uh, much of the city would be mapped by FEMA into a special flood hazard area. It would drastically restrict development and require flood insurance for citizens and businesses with government-backed mortgages. So our floodplain management uh, regulations, again, the city participates in FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program, as well as the community rating system in exchange for FEMA making flood insurance available to the community and providing flood assistance. Um, participation in the CRS allows the community to exceed minimum standards required by FEMA and provides discounts on flood insurance premiums. Our goal is to administer the National Flood Insurance Program and Community Rating System to liaison with SAFCA on flood control projects, to provide emergency preparation assistance and flood preparedness public outreach, to regulate floodplain uh, related to development projects, as well as implement the state's 200-year flood protection requirements. So the next part of our presentation goes to our drinking water regulations, and I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Mark Separide. Thank you, Cheryl. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Mark Severide. I am the city's water quality superintendent, and I'm gonna discuss with you some pending uh, drinking water regulations that uh, have potential impacts on, uh, on our operations and our rates. Uh, so we'll be discussing the PFAS uh, substances, uh, hexavalent chromium, the lead and copper rule and revisions to it, and also microplastics monitoring. Beginning with the, the PFASs or the PFAS substances, uh, these uh, have been very much in the news over the last few years, the forever chemicals. I think we've all probably all read some newspaper articles or seen some uh, uh, television coverage of, of these uh, compounds. Uh, man-made chemicals, a very large class of man-made chemicals with a very wide variety of industrial and commercial uses. Um, they're particularly of concern in uh, drinking water and in contamination of drinking water because they do not break down um, 
under, you know, through natural uh, processes in, in the environment. So they're persistent, environmentally persistent, um, serious health risks that are uh, uh, indicated with uh, uh, continued exposure to these uh, compounds. Uh, on the federal level, uh, the feds have uh, moved rather quickly uh, on these compounds and uh, earlier this year proposed maximum contaminant levels, MCLs, on uh, a group of about six PFASs. And um, so they will probably publish another uh, finalized version of these MCLs end of this year, beginning of next year. And at that point, uh, utilities like the city would have a three-year period to get in compliance with those regulations. Um, in California, we have been testing for PFASs for uh, quite a while now, since 2018, when the state of California started issuing monitoring orders and uh, requiring agencies to uh, comply with uh, notification levels and response levels, which are regulatory guidelines. They're not really uh, laws or, or rules, but they are guidelines that we need to sort of operate within. And um, we've been uh, doing that for since, since 2018. And uh, I think it's telling that in July, uh, California, uh, the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, OEHA, um, published for public review a draft of um, some public health goals for some of the PFOS compounds. And that's a signal that we will be seeing California MCLs for these compounds uh, in the near future. Uh, as far as impacts on the city, first, uh, important to note that uh, PFAS contamination is limited to the city's groundwater sources, uh, not, a, not an issue in our surface water sources. Um, but adoption of the federal MCLs will impact uh, operations at some of our well sites. There are a, a few of our well sites where when those um, federal MCLs are adopted, those wells will be over the line in, in the bad direction that we don't want. So we're, we're going to have to come to some sort of a re resolution of the, the, those issues. Um, as it sits now, uh, we are engaged in the evaluation of existing wells for the suitability of PFAS treatment or the abandonment of wells where treatment isn't feasible. Um, and then as far as the development of new well sites under our groundwater master plan, um, that uh, process includes the evaluation of the need for treatment or the ability to add treatment if needed at uh, newly developed sites. Um, and as I mentioned, we've been doing ongoing monitoring um, at all of our active sources since uh, 20, well, it says 2019, but 2018. And uh, we will uh, bring PFAS analysis in-house uh, to our own uh, laboratory within the next 18 months or so. Okay, the next topic is hexavalent chromium. Uh, it's the Aaron Brockovich chemical, right? We, we definitely have all heard about, the, about that one. Uh, chromium, it's a naturally occurring uh, element. It's uh, pre pre prevalent throughout the environment. Much of the low-level hexavalent chromium that you find in water in California is naturally occurring hexavalent chromium. Um, but it does have some serious health effects, which are listed there on the slide. Um, 
California has a very complicated history with the regulation of hexavalent chromium. In 2014, the state established a 10 part per billion MCL for hexavalent chromium. In 2017, the court invalidated that MCL because our regulator, the Division of Drinking Water, didn't do a proper economic feasibility analysis to you know, consider how much it costs to implement this MCL. And so DDW had to go to back to the drawing board. Uh, in 2020, they published a white paper on economic feasibility, which you know, checked that box. And uh, so in 2022, a new uh, draft MCL was released. Uh, it's exactly the same as the previous MCL, which is 10 parts per billion. And uh, DDW is actually beginning the formal regulatory process to adopt the MCL. Um, I think they were shooting for this year, but I doubt they'll make it. It'll probably be next year sometime. Um, and there'll be a three, like the PFOS, there'll be a three-year compliance period associated with that adoption. Um, so impacts on the city, again, like the PFOS's hexavalent chromium contamination is limited to the city's groundwater sources. And many of our groundwater sources have varying levels of hexavalent chromium in them. What we become concerned with as a water provider is when we start to reach one half of the MCL, we start to be concerned about a given source and wonder what should we do? Should we put treatment here? Should we get rid of this source? Um, and so that is a, a discussion that we're having uh, all the time trying to uh, rationalize our decision there and, and make sure that we're consistent in what we're doing. Uh, as uh, for the PFOSs, we're um, in our groundwater master plan, uh, there's in the inclusion of uh, you know, looking at proposed sites in terms of treatment. Can we add treatment here? Should we add treatment here? Um, and we do uh, chromium monitoring here in our own laboratory and we're ready to perform hexavalent chromium monitoring when the MCL becomes uh, in force. Okay, so the federal lead and copper rule is the next topic. Um, the city's been analyzing uh, water samples from our water distribution system from our customers' taps for lead and copper since the 1990s. Um, and over the years, uh, the lead and copper rule has been revised in little incremental ways, but uh, <clears throat> in 2021, there was a major uh, revision uh, ca called the LCR, the lead and copper rule revisions, um, and then with an initial focus on the development of service line material inventories and also the removal of any lead service lines. Uh, so... Um, What's interesting about the federal requirement for an inventory is that it includes not just the city's portion of the service line, but we also need to survey the customer-owned portion of the uh, service line, and that's something very different than we've really ever done with any kind of service. Typically, at the end of the, you know, the water meter, for example, that that becomes the customer's property. And so this is a, a change of uh, program for us. And uh, 
Yeah. Oh, in California, uh, uh, a recently advanced Assembly Bill, Assembly Bill 249, will require water agencies to perform expanded lead testing at schools within their service areas. Um, it's expected to be approved by the legislature, although we are seeing uh, some signs that the State Water Resources Control Board will um, ask for some amendments that might be helpful to utility districts like ours. The upshot of the AB 249 is that it basically requires testing at every potable water tap within a, a school. Um, the state has 3,000 or so community water systems and about 10,000 schools and the cost to local agencies is estimated to be you know, potentially in the tens of millions of dollars to do this testing. So for city impacts, um, for the federal lead copper rule revisions, our service line inventory is in process. We're on track to meet the deadline for it. And I'd like to point out that we have previously documented to our regulators that uh, there are no known lead services in our distribution system. Honestly, the appearance or the use of lead copper or rather, I'm sorry, lead uh, service lines, is, is, it's mostly an East Coast phenomenon where you have much, much older infrastructure. Uh, so that, in a way, that's a, a bullet that we've sort of ducked. Um, as far as uh, Assembly Bill 249, we do have 125 school sites where testing would be required, and we did a sort of a quick you know, back of the napkin uh, estimate of about $625 for a round of lead testing. Um, it's kind of unclear how frequently that testing would be required, so I can't, unfortunately, give you an answer for that. Oh, and finally, microplastics in drinking water, another uh, high interest topic for folks. Um, California, as usual, is way out ahead of the rest of, not just the rest of the nation, but the rest of the world in create, actually creating a, a regulation for microplastics and uh, requiring a definition of microplastics and uh, the development of a monitoring program. Um, it's, it's very interesting and really what the, the State Water Board is doing is doing big science uh, with the willing or unwilling participation of <laughs> uh, utilities throughout the state. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the monitoring program, which is going to go into effect late this year, is two phases. The first phase will focus on source water monitoring, and then the second phase, probably a few years later, will focus on treated water monitoring. And I don't know if I say it in this slide. No, I don't. So opposite the other issues I've spoken about, uh, hexavalent chromium and PFAS, microplastics is going to be an issue in our surface water sources, not in the groundwater sources. Um, you know, so we do expect to ex receive a monitoring order this year. Um, initial monitoring, as I mentioned, will focus on source water. The sample collection is complicated. I've read the method. It's complicated. And laboratory analysis will be extremely expensive, not one that we would be willing, uh, able to bring in in-house because very specialized work. Um, and uh, if microplastics plastics are detected, we're going to have to include that information in our annual consumer confidence report. So uh, interesting because 
nobody really knows the health effects or um, you know, dangers of microplastics, so it's uh, based on a little bit of uh, supposition at this point. Um, and then just looking down the road for a few other um, regulatory developments, uh, there is a revised cross-connection control regulation that's working its way into uh, law. Um, we expect to see a new lower MCL for arsenic um, we also expect to see a lower MCL for manganese, which is a pretty common uh, contaminant in groundwaters, and uh, perhaps uh, some sort of regulatory activity related to algal cyanotoxins, which are your uh, toxic algal blooms. Uh, so those could be things that we're looking at in the future. All right. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. No, we have no members of the public that wish to speak on this item. Thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? A third, oh. Good, I'm not done, I'm ready. There we go. So good evening, Chair Fidel and commissioners. Um, my name is Charlie Cunningham. I am the uh, Wastewater and Drainage Division Manager, and I also um, am responsible for our generator techs that uh, maintain all of the standby power generators throughout the city, uh, not only just for the Department of Utilities, but other, uh, the fire departments, police departments, city hall, uh, convention center. And then also we have some engine-driven pumps that are part of our flood control system. And so the, uh, the standby power, um, where we had the uh, storm events that were mentioned earlier this evening, right? It started in December, we had about a four day break at New Year's and then it went for 14 days straight. We um, seen, uh, you know, where we were very uh, dependent on that power uh, during those storm events. Uh, but the regulatory requirements definitely have an impact to our rates. Um, so there's approximately 120 uh, permitted, port, uh, port, you know, there, some are stationary and some are um, portable generators that we're able to move to wherever the priority station is. Uh, the generators are at, uh, you know, wastewater and storm uh, drainage pump stations. Uh, we also have them at the water treatment facilities. Uh, so that's for the drinking water. Uh, as well as our primary treatment for this flood control. And there's, you know, as I said, fire, police stations, libraries, uh, some of the parking structures. And then there are lo other locations throughout the city where we have critical IT communications equipment that we also um, maintain the backup power for those facilities as well. We have about five stations where the engine-driven pumps are. And so that's kind of a redundancy. So if we lose uh, power at those stations, then we're able to convert, uh, have the operations convert to using the internal combustion engines. We do have one facility on Garden Highway that is strictly uh, engine-driven pumps for dewatering that, that neighborhood. And so as I mentioned, the storm that we had um, starting in December, running through January, 
It was probably the, the, the highest number of outages that I've ever seen at one time. Uh, I think in the New Year's storm, we've seen up to 50 outages at one time. And it was always on the tail end of the storm where those most you know, significant winds came in and blew down trees and we lost power. Uh, the January storm, the tail end of that storm, we had 95 stations without power. Some of those stations were without power for more than three days. So had we not had these, you know, uh, standby powers um, in place at the facilities, we would have seen, you know, significantly more flood damage, you know, to neighborhoods. But that uh, slide there is our SCADA screen. So that's an index that has all the sumps. So there's uh, 42 sanitary uh, lift stations, and then we have 107 that uh, are on the drainage system. So, and just to kind of give you an idea of the number of homes that can be impacted, right? So that example up there, the Sump uh, 98 in South Natomas, it services over 632 acres, right? So you can imagine the amount of homes, right, that would be impacted if that one station goes down. And then the portable uh, generators, we have those staged at different areas, um, you know, in our facilities, so they can be deployed quickly. And in that three-day time frame where we've seen the outages where smudge is just so severely impacted, uh, we just have folks that are on a route, and they just continually are going station to station, pumping those stations down. And once they pump one station down, they go to the next one and just stay on that route until we resume power or the storm subsides and we no longer have a need to pump. So the mandates and regulation impacts. So the tier four requirement, uh, it requires us to reduce emissions by 90%, right? That's uh, for the manufacturers. And the, to meet uh, factory tier four compliance. And the, the upgrades uh, to where there are some uh, retrofits, and those can cost as much as about $100,000 per unit. Some of our generators are about the size of a city bus, right? So um, the largest facility we have for um, standby power is at the Sump 2 combined pumping station, which is kind of the heart of our combined system that services 17 square miles of the downtown area, including City Hall, the state capitol, <laughs> some pretty high value real estate uh, is in that system. But we have uh, eight megawatts of standby power generation capability there. So there's four of those big generators at that facility. And then the, um, the cost impacts, right? So as we mentioned earlier, Ryan covered some of the criteria for replacing fleet vehicles. But when the mandates are you know, rolled out, uh, we don't have the option to say, well, we're gonna defer this replacement, right? And, and within the last, um, rate cycle, I think there was over $7 million in generator expenses that had to be replaced to meet compliance for regulatory compliance. So we want to be there and be, you know, that, um, you know, as um, Sarah laid out, you know, our sustainability goals that we have, but those don't come, you know, without a cost. And so when those costs are mandates that weren't uh, built into, you know, our rate model in advance, then it impacts and there's other things that have to be deferred right, to, for us to meet uh, compliance with that. And then some of the locations are not, you know, um, where they can be upgraded, we just have to purchase new. Uh, then it, it also requires additional training for our Gentex so that they can service the new uh, components. 
and the new compliant uh, regulatory uh, compliant generators. And like I said, it's not just for DOU. There's about 85 stationary generators that we maintain uh, throughout the city. And then we have tanks uh, that, you know, have to be cleaned uh, with some of these components. Uh, the exhaust fluid, you know, if that goes stale, then we, we don't want to be injecting that into, you know, where we're creating more maintenance costs on our generator. So it's just another, you know, thing that has to be set up on a maintenance interval and that we, you know, is a cost that we need to pay attention to. Any questions? All right, thank you. Thank you. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. We have no members of the public that wish to speak on this item. Thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? I have so many questions. I know. I apologize. There will be a lot of technical questions. So I was thinking if there's anyone else who has questions, they might want to go first because maybe that'll help knock down some of my hundreds. Um, can you hear me okay through the mask? Okay. Um, I'll start off easy. I'll start off with the overall ones. I don't have any questions for you. Oh, most, of them are for, <laughs> most of them are going to be water related. So. Um, uh, so the overall one is how, like, or ha is there a plan to present to us and to the, the city council how to work climate change in these things, these costs that are going, we're going to continue to get them. We're, there's going to be these continued stronger regulations, stronger protections, stronger requirements into our rate fees so they're less of a shock for our, especially our low income and fixed income um, customers. So for the work that utilities does, uh, yes, um, right now uh, we're starting preparation for our next round of rate increases, we're anticipating for water and wastewater is probably going to be around FY27. Um, starting to figure out what that looks like, uh, including all the costs related to everything folks have talked about, uh, climate change, uh, the resiliency related to our infrastructure, uh, the maintenance, uh, incorporating deferred maintenance, which we've talked about before. Um, and, and trying to then look at what does that rate increase look like, and then what would a reasonable rate increase look like, right? Um, and have all those conversations with um, council, with the public. We also do public presentations when we go for rate increases before we take it to council for vote. And yes, UREC gets to see more details of what that looks like. Uh, so we'll be presenting all of the information uh, that we gather. Uh, we put all of the costs into our rate model and that helps us determine what that should be. So yes, you will be seeing all of that in this period from now until um, we have to take it forward. Uh, is There's gonna be a lot of information sharing. These presentations are an attempt to try to start that process, right? Giving you the background to what feeds into all of that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're gonna be working on that. You will see that. Um, anything related to utilities that comes from our ratepayers to fund, to be able to engage in, will will be brought to you to see. Okay, so now, now on to the technical question. So was probably the, I don't know. How many wells do we have that are testing over the MCL for hex chrome and for PFOS? 
Sorry, they're going to be really technical. I don't mean to. I, I used to work in drinking water, so I'm sorry about that. Certainly, please please don't apologize. Um, PFAS, there are two wells that are over current California regulations, mm -hmm. okay. which are, and the, those cal current California, what you call a response level, mm -hmm. um, th those are much higher than the federal proposed federal regulations, which are pitched at uh, for two of the PFOS compounds. Those uh, MCLs are pitched at four parts per trillion. Wow. I always like to t remind people that uh, a trillion seconds is 32,000 years, so four parts per trillion, very tiny. Um, so you, there are um, a handful of wells. Nine? Does that sound about right to you? We've talked about it many times. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact number um, that are, you know, in danger of of being over that very low bar. Yeah, and I know that they set this very low bar because if someone lives with it for an extended period of time, that that's where it's coming from. And I I understand that it might feel silly to have such a low bar, but it makes sense in many ways with regulations. The second one was what about um so that was for PFOS. What about hexchrome? Um, now, for hexchrome, the issue is more uh, what I mentioned about approaching half the MCL yeah. and quite quite a number of our wells, 12, 15. Like a large percentage, maybe? Like, Sorry? Like maybe percentage, how many wells? Maybe like 10 percent, 20 percent of our wells? Mm. Probably about half. Half, half. yeah. Okay. Half, yeah. Or about over, over half the MCL. So you're looking at the They're approaching or over half the MCL. And that, that's just a, a benchmark where we start to be concerned uh, about a water source. Is this a good water source? Do we want to continue to keep serving this water? I think, you know, it's important uh, to keep in mind, our goal isn't just to comply with the regulations. Our goal is to provide the best water that we can. So sometimes we're looking at uh, oh, wow, we're getting to half an MCL, and that causes us concern, and we want to decide, are we going to pro provide treatment at this well? Are we going to get rid of this well and find a different well to replace it? So that's the sort of the driver there. Um, and then last one that I had for you is, do you know if this city's uh, wells are under any of the plumes from the PFOS? You know... I know, like, we have the... Everyone knows about the Mesa... Airbase yeah. uh, issue, so I wasn't sure if we were under any of the plumes specifically within your well basin. I don't think we've really been able to determine, uh, you know, a source or a direction of a plume or anything that like that in our in our monitoring. I'm sorry for all the questions. Hmm? Um, so I think I only have one question, but it's it's for the stormwater now. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Um, with, when it comes to recharging, I know like that's a lot. When we're having storms, a big part of it is like capture to keep it from flooding into, um, so we don't have any overflow into the river. Um, has there been any work with like communities and individuals to try to like help make more recharge areas and recharge basins within the community? I haven't seen a lot, so I was curious if we're working on that. Yeah, as a part of our uh, NPDES permit requirements, we do require. Um, we'll call them runoff uh, reduction BMPs that have some uh, bioretention is the most common one that we use, stormwater planters that has some infiltration. 
uh, a problem in the city is we have a lot of clay soils, so we don't have infiltrating rates in a lot of cases. So even our bioretention planters oftentimes will have uh, underdrains in them, but we still will get smaller storms that could be infiltrated or uh, taken up by plants. Um, they, we do have in our design standards, we would allow infiltration trenches or infiltration basins, um, but we just don't really see them being used um, due to our soil types. So um, you might think, oh, we're close to the river. We do have infiltrating soils. What are you talking about, Cheryl? The closer that we get to the river, if we're downtown, then we're too close to groundwater. So um, they need to have at least a 10-foot separation from the bottom of any of these um, stormwater treatment facilities to groundwater, um, or we will not allow them to use an infiltration um, feature. So most often when we have the right soils, we have high groundwater. Um, so we don't see a lot of true just 100% infiltration devices, but we do have um, things like disconnected downspouts, um, we're running things through vegetation, and like I said, most often uh, people are using bioretention. We require them for the water quality storm event um, that 50% of that runoff is um, uh, reduced before they discharge. So that's for new development projects. We've been doing that from, I think, since 2018 as well. Um, I think it was voluntary before that, but we really put the mandate in place in 2018. Um, but we currently are not retrofitting any of our existing uh, drainage system because we just don't have funding, as you guys have heard many times. That was, thank you. That answers my question. And I, I think that was all my questions. I had I had questions, but they're just clarification. Um, I think they'll go fast. So far on the combined sewer system, you mentioned the cost of storage projects, and I was wondering, are, are those basically the vaults? Is yeah. That, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was just what I was wondering. And then, um, but it's still cheaper. It's still cheaper to do these types of storage things than to replace the combined sewer sewer system. Like, there's no. Yeah, I think, um, like, separating the system. Yeah, yeah I think um, definitely it, we believe it's cheaper. We are doing, as a part of that 2024 submittal, um, we are doing an evaluation to do uh, estimates for what it would be um, to separate the system again. It comes up regularly, and um, the study that we used was done in the 90s, so we want to update it and have it be a little bit more current. So next year we should have some updated numbers. Um, but some of the other challenges is we would uh, be having to put pipes in every street of downtown, right? So, and at the same time, you can't invest in the current system that's very old um, to prevent SSOs. So that challenge of how do you keep the system functioning and maintaining the system while you're doing this big investment uh, project. And then um, just like we were talking about the stormwater NPDES permit, you no longer can just connect drainage and send it to the river without doing some type of stormwater treatment, right? It's a much more lower level of treatment, but you got to reduce runoff and put treatment BMPs in place, and that is green infrastructure, like I mentioned, with bioretention. So there's so many complications um, that we really just believe it's going uh, to push the cost up, that it's not feasible. And then um, I'm always a big proponent that people don't think about the combined system. They think of it as icky and, um, right, why does the city still have it, right? We're the only one of two uh, in California. But um, on any given year, we're 95% of our dry, all dry weather flows and 95% of our wet weather flows and rain events 
go to regional sand. So that plant is providing tertiary treatment. So when we've looked at water quality data, if we discharge to the American or Sacramento River versus the amount of that watershed area that goes, like uh, Charlie mentioned, um, the 17 square miles, it goes to regional sand and gets much better treatment than we're gonna get for stormwater BMPs. Um, and so we really only discharge, you know, a handful of times in most winters. So it really is a great water quality protection for the Sacramento River. Here's my little cell for the complaints. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, for the microplastics treatment, um, you said that it's very expensive to develop the testing for that in-house, and so do I just understand that you're going to be sending those samples out for... Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. That was my whole question. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> um, did I have another one? No, that was it. Just wanted to make sure I understood. So thank you for those presentations. Um, I found this fascinating. Thank you very much. This item is um, receive and file, so no vote is required. We'll move on to the next item. I think that's it. Um, hey, Megan, I, I just wanted to thank them for answering all my questions. I know I was maybe a little bit more technical on this than most people. It just happens to be the area I've worked in and currently work in, so thank you. Thank you. Um, so the next is, um, let's see, does it go to here? The commissioner comments, yeah. Are there any commissioner comments, ideas, and questions? No. Um, I was going to ask if we could discuss the memo that you guys got on options for providing water to people who are unhoused at our next meeting, if we could do that on the September meeting. Um, or we can discuss that. Um, when we do the agenda setting for that meeting, but um, I, I'm hoping to get that in the September, November agendas. Okay, thank you. And then do we have any members of the public who wanted to speak on any item? Or thank you, Chair. On the agenda? Thank you, Chair. No, we do not have any members that wish to speak on the matters not on the agenda. Great, thank you. This concludes today's agenda. Thank you everyone for your participation. This meeting is adjourned.